0: Visit plannedparenthood.org/future to learn more and support their cause.
1: Hi, we're Visible. We are the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great Wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right, 25 a month, every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just visible. Switch today at visible.com. Rate right with service on the visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see visible.com. So, what's the plan? I'm going to talk about the yeah, plan. Tell us. Oh, are we podcasting again? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay.
2: Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Box Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here with Ezra Klein and Sarah Cliff. Uh, Ezra and Sarah are going to be back with me tomorrow morning, Woo-hoo! where we will be Double able to weeds. discuss the results of the midterm elections. Um, Ezra's going to be up at I guess like it's like two a.m. on the West Coast or something. When it's we Pretty tape. early, but. Today, we're going to try to do an episode where we, we set all this aside and we really go into the weeds on some some unrelated non-election news topics. But I did want to well, exercise it's not, it's my – an unrelated election
3: news topic. Well, it's, an, it's, a, it's about how to do elections better. It is not related to this campaign.
2: It's not, it's not on the issues the candidates are talking about. But I, but I wanted to – I did want to exercise a little uh, host prerogative and make everybody do some election predictions so we can hold ourselves accountable tonight. Um, I think – We are going to see modest Democratic Party overperformance relative to the polling average. Democrats look better in the gold standard live caller polls than they do in the robo-polls. They looked better in the last-minute wave of polls than they had in the polls from a a week ago. They have been slightly overperforming their polling in special elections. So I think it's going to be like 50 Democratic House seat gains and about even Stephen in the Senate. On net, that's a, that's my call. You can hold me to it tomorrow, Sarah. What do you think? What's going to happen?
4: So I will. I'll pick a different thing to predict on. I think we're going to see. At least three, maybe all four of the Medicaid expansion ballots passed tonight. Um, So I've been writing a lot about these ballots in Idaho, Nebraska, Utah, and Montana. And three of those would expand Medicaid in the first time, and one of those, Montana, would continue funding the Medicaid expansion, which is currently set to sunset in um, 2019. I think it's a really interesting test of whether red states are ready to embrace this really key part of the Affordable Care Act that – could really have like a huge effect for about, um, I think it's about 300,000 low-income Americans would gain coverage if they all pass. And kind of looking at the polling, looking at how people feel about Medicaid expansion, the role that it played in the ACA debate and its staying power, I'm pretty bullish it's going to pass in Idaho, Nebraska, and Utah. Weirdly, I think the place where it's actually um, it has its worst odds is in Montana, where the expansion already exists, which is because – the tobacco industry has poured millions of dollars into opposing the um, the ballot initiative to expand Medicaid there because the state wants to fund Medicaid expansion with a slightly higher cigarette tax. So that's what I'll predict in, and we'll see tomorrow if I'm right. Nice.
3: So my predictions won't be that interesting because I basically agree with Matt's predictions. Um, I, as a rule, try not to predict elections because I have no reason to think I'm more correct than pollsters. So... In general, I think what the forecasts say will happen is likely to happen. If I had to guess in the direction things are going to be off, I would guess in the direction towards the party with more enthusiasm, which is the Democrats. That's generally what happens. You know, if I had to go with it, I'd say modest Democratic overperformance, if anything. But but who knows? Um, And I, I do think it's possible. I think it is quite possible Democrats lose seats in the Senate. I just don't know how to think about, say, like the Michigan race and a couple of the others. The only thing I will offer as a prediction. Is if we end up in a situation tomorrow or whenever we find out the final results where Democrats, you know, held or lost a seat or two in the Senate and they won the House by plus five or plus six in the vote but did not actually win the House because of the way gerrymandering worked out, because of the way geography had worked out. And so we begin 2019 with Democrats. Out of power in the House, despite winning more votes there. Out of power in the Senate, despite winning more votes there. Out of power in the White House, despite winning more votes there. This is something I've been following for a bit, but I think you're going to see the party really turning on the political system. You're going to have the Democrats become an anti-system party. And the the main point of the Democratic Party will be to begin rewriting rules, so competition is fairer in its direction, or what it perceives as fairer in its direction. And so I think that's actually an interesting downside. I don't want to call it risk of that, because I think it's correct. I think that the system has become a little bit dangerously un d democratic. But I think that the consequences of Democrats winning the House vote, but not the House, will be more severe and long-lasting than I think people are prepared for. I don't think it will just be taken, particularly on the left, as a sign of Democratic underperformance. I think it will be taken as a sign that elections are now rigged enough against Democrats that the main point of the Democratic Party has to be unrigging them.
2: Nice. OK. Check in tomorrow. Good. We will see what happens. Um, we're going to take just an, an early break here for the sake of the structure of the show. And then we're going to dive. Could I add one thing
3: to that? Yes. Would that be OK. <laughs> Um, uh, we're not going to I, I did I did a podcast with Jane. Um, it relates to what I just said. I did a podcast with Jane a couple weeks ago where we talked about the ways in which elections are being rigged, and you know we we're talking a little bit about hacking and things like that. We were also talking about voter suppression and other things. And one thing we didn't note in there, which I did think was interesting, um, and I should have known it because Tara Golshan and others have written about it in Vox, but is that the first piece of legislation Democrats have promised to pass if they win back um, the House or the Senate or both is a big bill. With sort of pro against small D democratic reforms, automatic voter registration, things like that, Um, which I think is interesting. It it speaks a little bit to the way the party is beginning to focus on this question of making voting easier and more possible for people as a core issue, not just of fairness, but of its own survival. So if they win, you're going to see some action on that. And if they lose, I think the pressure on that is going to become much more almost violent. But but I just wanted to note that because that was an an omission from that past episode.
2: There we go. Good. Okay. So let's take a quick break, and then we're going to hear about Seattle's plan to save democracy.
5: Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics Podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy.
0: You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org slash future to learn more and support their cause.
3: So, Sarah, I, I was listening to the first episode of the new season of The Impact Is that on the Max Media
4: Podcast Network? It is. It just started on Friday.
3: Oh, everyone should check it out. Yes. Awesome. It was honestly in this season, it was the single most inspiring thing I've heard. Aww. It like made me feel good about democracy for a minute. Not and, and I guess we'll talk about it, not because it's working necessarily all that well, but just like <laughs> yeah, hearing people trying that. to make
4: me feel sad about democracy, but go hearing, on. Hearing
3: like people earnestly try to make how elections work better in this like moment when like everything is about like, well, how much voter suppression will there be? I, I found it to be a real tonic. So like what's the plan? What is, what, what what was Seattle trying to do?
4: Okay, so this is from my other podcast, The Impact, which looks at how policy affects people. This season, we are looking at all these local policy experiments. Basically, people in cities and states decided something was broken, and sometimes they're doing some pretty zany things to fix really big problems. And the first one we looked at is Seattle's plan to fix campaign finance. And what they did, which is really, as far as I can tell, they're the only place in the entire world that does this— They sent every single Seattle resident $100 to donate to political races. The idea here is something called democracy vouchers. Um, It it was actually an idea that's been floating around for about a half decade now from um, Larry Lessig at Harvard is the guy who kind of came up with this. He wrote an op-ed about this in The New York Times in 2011. A guy in Seattle um, read that op-ed and said – That sounds great, and no one else does that. We should do that. So Seattle is the rare place that's liberal enough where they passed a ballot initiative in 2015 to raise their own property taxes in order to send everybody these things called democracy vouchers, which are these $100 – they almost look like checks. You write the candidate's name in. You sign it over to, to the candidate. And the idea is right now we can't take big money out of politics. Um, a lot of that is kind of off the table due to the Citizens United decision. What Seattle decided to do was swamp their elections with small money, that if they can't get big money out of there, make big money matter less by making small money matter a lot more. It's super different from anything that is out there. Like, I, I, Well, where do you guys want to go now? Because we could talk about what happened, how it worked. Um, there's a lot going on.
3: Let's talk a little bit of just about the— background context, here, because I think it's important for understanding why they decided what they did. So like going back in a bunch of Supreme Court uh, rulings, Buckley v. Vallejo, but more recently Citizens United and the constellation of rulings around Citizens United, the Supreme Court has held that money in politics is speech and you can't regulate speech except in pretty extreme circumstances. And so the idea that you could just limit how much money is spent in politics has basically become a non-starter in the absence of either a constitutional amendment or a very different composition on the Supreme Court. And so I think a good place to start with is, like, why is that a problem? Um, one of the interesting things about the Seattle argument is that they come at this, and what is the problem you're actually trying to fix from a direction that I think people don't always think about? And so do you want to just talk a little bit about, like, not just the issue of corporate capture, but also the issue sure. of, like, legitimate candidate selection, who who gets to run in politics and, and what and what kinds of people they end up being?
4: Yeah, yeah. So I think, I mean, that's one of the things that's kind of interesting to me about the Seattle... Um program is they had a lot of different problems they were trying to solve. There are a lot of different ways to measure was this successful or not. I think a key one, like you mentioned, is who actually runs for office in the United States. And one of the things they were seeing, and this is, you know, this is all in municipal elections in Seattle. So we're looking at local elections that even there, it's really people with more connections who don't always look like the people they are representing, who end up kind of getting funneled into The candidate system, and you know, those are people who might be you know more likely to be asked to run in the first place, and then have an easier time, kind of finding larger donations. Um, You know, before this program, Seattle had a seven hundred dollar limit on donations, and you know, I was talking to one guy who ran and lost, and said, you know, for me, I I went through my list of people who would give me seven hundred dollars pretty quickly. So when I look at—so Seattle did this for the first time in 2017, and I think the biggest victory of it was changing the candidate pool. The woman who ended up winning the race was this woman named Teresa Mosqueda, who is 37. She's Latina. She's still paying um, student loans. She's a renter. Like, she looks a lot more like the people who live in Seattle than a lot of the people on city council historically have, and— and she is someone who would have never run before this program because she says, look, I'm just not the type of person anyone would have approached to run for office. You know, the party machine, like, wasn't really looking at me as a candidate because I don't really look like a typical candidate. And I wouldn't have even, like, thought about doing this if someone had approached me because, like, I don't I don't know – enough people with money to donate to my campaign. So, you know, she ended up financing about a third of her fundraising came through the Democracy Voucher Program. She raised $300,000 from these kind of this fake money that was mailed out all across Seattle. So I think there's a lot of different things going on in terms of like, it reminds me a little bit in a weird way of the discussion we were having around um, family leave policy, where it's one of those policy areas where— You could have a lot of different goals, increasing small donations, changing the candidate pool, changing what type of people donate, reducing the influence of big money. There's a constellation of things you could be trying to do here, and all of them, you know, if you measure them on different metrics, kind of you get a better or worse picture of, like, how well this particular program worked.
2: Something that I thought was interesting about this, right, is that in, like, the op-ed form of the democracy vouchers, it's like everyone gets their $100 voucher and then they give it to a candidate of their choice. And you don't sort of, like, delve into, like, like the super details of, like, what actually happens. So, like, what kind of uptake is there on
4: this? Yes. So about 3% of the democracy vouchers were used in Seattle. So this is the part that makes me, like, a little— sad about the experiment, is that they sent out $54 million in, you know, in possible campaign donations, that that fake money that could really be turned into real money. 97% of that didn't get used. And when I interviewed a lot of people about it, I kind of thought people wouldn't know about the program because it was the first year that they'd be like, oh, I didn't even know this was a thing. I interviewed a lot of people who were like, oh, yeah, I got that. But like, Shruggy, like, forgot to use it, didn't really think the election— a lot of, like, people who were saying, like, I didn't think the election mattered because, like, in Seattle, we have 15 liberal women running for mayor. So, like, what's the point of using it anyways? Anyone who wins is going to be roughly fine. So the take-up rate—I mean, there are other reasons I think the take-up rate was low. They sent them out in January when the election wasn't until November, which left, like, a lot of time for them— to be lost. So I think like when I look at this program, I see a program that really changed it changed more than I thought who runs for office. It didn't lead to like everyone suddenly becoming a donor in the way politics But But I, but in I mean Seattle.
2: to be to be more optimistic about it, right? It's just like some real change happened. Yes. Even though the program like didn't actually generate as many small-dollar donations as you might have thought. Mm-hmm. So it, it does suggest that, like, look, you could... Instead of scrapping this, like you could tweak it, right? Yes. Like, like maybe instead of sending paper checks to people, so there should be they're like switching a to an electronic an, system. An they're
4: going to mail them out a little later next year. Yes, there and, are logistical. And also, things like if you do.
2: were originally thinking about the budget for this, and someone was like, "Let's give everyone a two thousand dollar voucher," and then you add it up, and you are like, "That'd cost way too much money," so you cut it down to a hundred, but it turns out only three percent of people use it. So maybe you could afford to make them five hundred dollar.
4: Well, so yeah, some of the interesting math going on here is they only raise three million in property taxes. So the program working specifically relies on a lot of people not they're a little like not using their vouchers. They're actually a little concerned about the upcoming mayor's election in a few years that people might outspend the funding ah. of the program. But that's actually like a feature, not a bug.
3: I want to put a pin in the the funding of the program because we could fund programs like this more if we cared more about elections or campaign finance, and and that we choose to not as like a that's like a will problem, not a technical problem. But I think one reason I found this all more optimistic, maybe than than either of you did, is that that early take up rate just didn't surprise me, and also it didn't perturb me. It's a it's a thing about politics and policy making that people roll out a policy, and it's like if it does not work amazingly well in the first year it's like it's a failure it's done it's gone (laughs) like scrap it set it on fire like vote everybody out of office it's done and it's like in the world of like product releases you often release something you bring out a a phone or you bring out an item or a gadget or whatever and it takes some time for everything to come together and work, right? It takes some time to figure out how to market it. It takes some time to figure out the best way to deliver it. You know, this is what all the talk in Silicon Valley of, like, pivoting strategies is um, or or even, like, pivoting what what you're creating. And, like, the idea that, you know, there's this program and it hasn't, like, quite caught fire yet, but... But have people really, like, for instance, it does not seem to me that in the first round the candidates quite yet knew how to change their strategies around the existence of these democracy vouchers. Now, some of them did a little bit. Um, It's super interesting to to hear the candidates in 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 the story talk about getting seven hundred dollars in democracy vouchers in a single night of campaigning. But it's like when I imagine how something like this might work, I imagine that what you would have is something like a mayoral race, and the mayoral race is very contested, and one of the candidates is a kind of like inspiring grassroots candidate. And in the very much the same way that $27 became a rallying cry for the Bernie Sanders um, world, that like the democracy voucher becomes a rallying cry for this candidate. And then it begins to like trigger a user behavior. They're like, oh, it's like this is yeah, like I I give these to people. Like I gave it to this candidate. It felt great. I'm going to give it to the next candidate who makes me feel great. But this is is
2: where the limited funding base is potentially right. Because like one way you can imagine this going is that like the Ezra Klein, grassroots candidate, catches fire, right, and like wins but bankrupts the program. And then two years later, right, like Jeff Bezos spends 0.0000001 percent of his money just like bury the incumbent mayor in ads with a slogan like we're going to stop putting this huge property tax burden on you for this clean election scheme and then like they pass some law that like yes it scraps this little thing but it also gives like a return to him that's like eight bajillion times bigger than what he himself did. But but this
3: gets to this bigger point in American politics right now and and it's like we have to decide if we care about elections, if we care about right. campaign finance reform. I mean, like, democracy vouchers are one version of this. Small donor matching is another where mm-hmm. you take, say, donations up to 50 or up to $250 and you uh, match them up to five times or up to nine times so that small donors immediately become more like large donors or large-ish donors. So it's easier to put that together. like these numbers aren't that big. Like, you'll sometimes hear folks who are not worried about money in politics when, you know, folks say, oh, this election's going to cost a billion or four billion dollars. They'll mm-hmm. say, yeah, like that's less than we spend advertising toothpaste in America. And right. isn't this more important than toothpaste in America? And like, it is. It is more important than toothpaste in America. Well, toothpaste is very important, but it's more important than marketing toothpaste in America. But the, the problem here, like, in my view, is like, I talk to people a lot about running for office. Not like in an advice way, just like it comes up, you know, like people are thinking People I know think about running for office or they talk about it sort of casually. And like almost every single one of them, the reason they don't is they say, I just don't want to call people up and ask them for money. Like, I, I would like to do this, but like I don't want to call people up and ask them for money. As like we can make a choice in this country that the only people who run for office are rich people or people who know a lot of rich people. Or we can decide we want this to open up more. Nick Carnes is a political scientist who studies this. And we, we ran a great piece on Vox using some of his research. About 50 percent, a little bit more than 50 percent of the country works in sort of what we like define as working class jobs, sort of more blue collar jobs. Less than a tenth of elected officials come from those jobs. So it's right. like, we have like 50-some percent of the country um, who works in these jobs. It's like a, a part of the country that we venerate in American politics, but it is like none of them. No, like to a first approximation, just about no one from that world is able to run for office. Now, there are exceptions. Um, Ocasio-Cortez is one. I mean, there, there are others too, but it's a very, very, very small number, and it's in large part because of this, like, this filtering mechanism of, of money in politics. It's just like, if you don't know rich people and you don't like asking people for money, like, you don't want to do this job, and so we're warping who goes into politics. And yeah, I, I, like the, I agree, I agree like with like you, all You could of just that. change this. It. It's I'm, not that much money. Like, for the, the, the that's what the toothpaste thing actually says from the other direction. We could just raise this money. It's not a huge deal. But right, I, But, like, what would cost no money would be to regulate the campaign finance
2: system. And, like, I don't disagree with this, but, like, I super disagree with, like, accepting the premise that these obviously incorrect Supreme Court decisions are right. And, like, if I was the president, I would just pass the law that existed before and just like tack on a clause that says like, fuck you, this can't be reviewed by the Supreme Court. And then like I would replace Supreme Court justices and I would talk every day about how these assholes who went to their fancy private schools and their fancy private law schools and are friends with rich lawyers are like trying to destroy American democracy, right? Like you should just like – just shouldn't be allowed. Like, Sheldon Edelson made a $50 million campaign contribution to House Republicans, and like, he should go to jail if he does that.
4: Right. I mean, but at the same time, we're talking about like, if this is standing, like, if this is the world we live in, like, What can be done? I mean, I've spent a lot of time thinking about these democracy vouchers since, you know, I went out to Seattle for this in February. So I've been working on this story for a while. And I would say if you're finding this discussion interesting, I would highly recommend going back and listening to the Impact episode, which covers a lot of this ground. It'll make, you know, all this make a little more sense. So I've kind of thought about, like, would I vote for a ballot on democracy vouchers knowing what I know now? And I think... I think the answer for me is yes. Uh, you know, I was dismayed by the participation rates, but, um, you know, I, I agree with what you're saying, Ezra, about this kind of the key thing here being the widening of the candidate pool. The thing that would really give me pause, though, you know, I, I would be like a kind of a torn supporter, is that it is— true that this money comes from somewhere. And one of the features of this program is it has incredibly high administrative costs. So Seattle sent about a million dollars out in democracy vouchers to candidates. They spent a million dollars on administrative costs on top of that. So that is all the money spent printing and mailing the ballots, the ads to make sure people know about them, the office space, the people who run the program It works out to roughly 50 percent of the budget for the program going to administrative costs. And that might go down a little bit when they switch to an electronic system. But first, they have to build the electronic system, and that costs even more money. And I think, like, we should think through, like, is this a good investment of taxpayer dollars, of taxpayer dollars, you know, in Seattle that could go to more affordable housing, which is a huge issue in the area right now? I think I I lean yes at this point. Like, if you were a charity and you had a 50 percent administrative spending, like, that would be pretty horrendous. Um, I think because of the change it's affecting, I still think it's a worthwhile investment. But I I don't – I think it should be seen as a trade off and noted some places have decided against this. Um, Austin actually was pretty seriously considering democracy vouchers but ended up rejecting them. I think it was over the summer their city council went against them. So, you know, it – it's having a little trouble getting traction elsewhere. But I think, you know, to me, I don't think about it as like a free ride. Like those are real real dollars that could be spent on other things. And I think we should – like the question is, is it worth that money we're spending to buy the different candidate pool?
3: This is a way in which I think a lot of these things end up downstream from one another, though. And then you get into this, this situation where it's like like crabs fighting at the bottom of the barrel where, okay, like – The state of Washington doesn't have an income tax like it does not have a state income tax and like there is like it's a it's constitutionally. Thus, um, But you could change the Constitution. There's arguments that you could create a capital gains tax. The Washington state happens to have the richest people in the world living there, or at least it has Jeff Bezos living there. Bill so Gates. Like, the fact that it doesn't have an income, Bill Gates, the fact that it doesn't have an income tax is actually pretty meaningful. And so you end up with like a, a, a system where we know that when people get elected from more working class backgrounds, they're more economically populist, right? They, they pass more economically populist laws. So then you have a state where, and in general, like a political system everywhere that makes it very hard to get elected if you're from that background, if you're not already a rich person, and if you're not already appealing to rich people. And then you get a very weak tax structure. And then, you know, you end up in these, these questions like, are we going to spend any money on homelessness or are we going to like try to make it possible to have a democracy that isn't completely purchased by rich people? And it's not that you're completely right, Sarah, like within the construct as it exists right now. But that's why I think like these things need to be thought of as an investment in like a, a future fairer political system in which some of these some of these um, tensions are, are, are not as sharp. It's not that it will ever stop costing money. Nothing is free. But in terms of what money gets spent on, making it possible for American government to be more representative seems like a very, very, very important thing. And and like the fact that in a state where it's like you have Bill Gates and you have Jeff Bezos not paying income tax, that there also has to be a conversation of like, can you spend a couple million dollars on democracy vouchers or like, you know, do you, do you have to like – like does every cent need to be spent on reducing homelessness – it's like very much the right question for a mayor, but it's like it's a question that ends up being in a weird way like downstream from do you do things like democracy vouchers now? So in 30 years, people aren't making that same decision.
2: Something that that I think people should consider pursuing here, right, is that the city of Seattle, like all cities in America, has a franchise agreement with cable television operators because to provide cable television, you need either access to publicly owned utility poles uh, or else uh, underground. I, I don't actually know if they have utility poles or they're underground in Seattle. I've never been there. But at any rate, like all cities reach franchise. You've governors. never been to Seattle? No, I haven't. It's, huh. It has That's the distinction think. of largest American city I've never been to.
3: They must be so proud.
2: Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's delightful. <laughs> but... So you you have to reach these agreements with cities where you want to operate a cable network. And a city somewhere should try to put into the agreement that you have to give free airtime to candidates for office, you know, who meet some kind of standards and that you will not run political ads with some like stringent, no BS, you know, no issue ad, blah, 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 blah kind of stuff. Now, look, like if you – Put that into a franchise agreement like the Koch brothers will sue you and as long as John Roberts is the decisive fifth vote on the Supreme Court, like he will probably throw your rules out at some point. Um, But like there's no safeguard – like I I do think like all laws that have any merit will probably be thrown out by this current Supreme Court. But like you have to keep pushing on it I think. Like I don't – I don't disagree with what Ezra was saying about the importance of this but like the reason the crabs are clawing at the bottom of the barrel is that the Supreme Court just got a series of obviously crazy decisions that like should be laughed at and screamed about and like the institution should be burned to the ground before we accept it. And I don't like to see public officials do anything that accords any legitimacy at all to this body of jurisprudence, like I'm fine attaching democracy vouchers as, like, a subclause to a law that also makes it illegal for rich people to buy elections. But, like, that's the problem here. And, like, I think it's, like, it's really important to, like, insist on it. There's, like, no basis at all for this view that they have imposed that, like, Congress cannot try to enact fair political system in the United States.
4: But I guess if you're a city, like, I get— that view but also if you're a, you're a city and like you're wanting to change things right now. Like, yeah. Like, what is the case against changing things right now in a way no, that actually seems to be But, like, but like that's, like that's why I was catalog.
2: proposing try to do this cable franchise thing because, like, it's novel. It hasn't been litigated yet. I, I guess the landscape that I see, right? So, like, Larry Lessig is a law school professor and, like, God bless him. But, like, law school professors are terrible, right? And, like, when terrible people on the Supreme Court do something terrible to try to advance their terrible idea, what they tend to do is, like, go back to the drawing board and be like, if I... Except the good faith of these people. How can I accomplish this through some legal means? Which like good for him. I enjoy his books. He makes some good podcasts. Um, but like his better point is that like the insane level of corruption in the American political system is bad, right? I'm and gonna- like you got to just fight back against it like on all the channels all the time.
3: I, I, I'm i going to go with two, I think, not that hot takes here of saying that I think some law school professors are actually not terrible. Um, hmm. but, but also I sort of want to put to the side the question of because um, I think it's sort of another episode of whether or not the correct political strategy from here on out is to try to like invalidate the Supreme Court and like revisit judicial review I both, like, don't actually agree with that, although I will note to my earlier point about predicting um, a legitimacy crisis growing on the left. Like, I think this is sort of what I'm talking about. But I do not think there's reason to believe that all kinds of campaign finance reform, particularly um, matching things like this, particularly things at the state level like this, will be thrown out. Mm -hmm. There's been a lot of different kind of matching programs over the years. They've done fine, you know, and I think that within the idea of it being um, speech, it would probably be fine. And Democracy vouchers at the city level, like I don't, I don't see a reason to believe like that will fail and then it will, and then it could, then it could ladder up. And the more you get these into highly competitive races, things like, like imagine if you had democracy vouchers in Florida or in Georgia right now in the governor's race. Like imagine how many of those would actually be being used. Mm -hmm. That's a little bit like where I see this going. Like local politics always has a problem of low information and low turnout. So the idea that like not that many of these were used when they came in the mail, uh, like Sarah Mm -hmm. in your episode, like, the candidate who wins using these initially throws hers out, which I yes. think is like a great um, is like a great little detail there. But if you had these, you know, around for a bit, and then they are able to be catalyzed in an election where people are super activated, like I think they could really matter. And like I don't think they would get thrown out. Like I think it's a I think it's a really like valuable approach to this that like both people shouldn't get discouraged by the fact that like you need to like tweak and twist it to make it work or that, like, there needs to be some money behind it because the money, I believe, is worth spending. I do not see reason to believe it will be thrown out um, judicially. I I don't think this is any any way like a DOA policy.
4: Right. No, I mean, the way – it was actually written, like, very much to survive. So one of the things they can't actually do is force candidates to take the democracy vouchers. They have to opt into the system, and there are significant incentives to do so in that you get access to all these vouchers, um, but you have to accept a slightly lower – limit on your other contributions. So it was written specifically in a way to survive, um, you know, any kind of judicial challenges. And I think it faced a few that weren't that were thrown out pretty quickly. You know, to your point, Ezra, that was the the original Lessig proposal is is about Congress. It's not about, you know, some municipality in the Pacific Northwest doing this. The idea is that this should be a feature of how we fund congressional elections. But of course, like it did not have much of a shot of going anywhere in Congress, This guy out at a think tank in Seattle reads about it and decides, you know, we should try that here. But, I mean, that's why, you know, I'm doing this season on local policy. I think that's kind of how a lot of stuff starts at this point, that someone tests it out. And, you know, Seattle, I mean, they are sticking with it. Like, they feel really good about how the program went. Um, Teresa, the candidate who won, has been doing a lot of, you know, speaking at different cities that are interested in possibly setting up their own program. So Seattle feels, you know, really good about how, the democracy voucher program went. And they're making some tweaks to make it work a little bit better. But it definitely, you know, is is sticking around. And even it's a lot of people I talked to who didn't use their vouchers were still really supportive of the program. They thought it was great, even though I thought one of the things that kind of jumped out at me in reporting this is five times as many Seattleites voted to create the democracy vouchers than actually ended up using them. So I, I think like Seattleites, they, they like the idea of this being the thing that happens in their city, even if they are not fully participating in the program.
2: So I, I think it's worth mentioning here that the United States for a while had a, not a democracy voucher, but a public funding for presidential campaigns, you know, that was inspired yes. to an extent by, by some of this thinking. But the way that wound up, collapsing was that it was like the Seattle system, right? right? So it was opt-in, right? So it was you could get the public matching funds, but you had to abide by spending limits. And this was because Congress responding to the Supreme Court had said that Congress cannot set rules for how elections are conducted that prevent rich people from buying the election. So they created this complicated opt-in workaround. And for a while, it worked really well, right? And so presidential candidates found the carrot of those matching funds really attractive. And so they abided by the spending limits. But what wound up happening was that the size of that matching fund pot didn't grow fast enough to keep up with the surging rate of campaign fundraising. And so eventually the Obama campaign in 2008 became the first campaign to decide, well, we'll actually have more money uh, if we don't take the matching funds. Um, And so in 2008, they didn't take the matching funds and McCain did. But then after that, like once Obama had had pulled the top off the Pringles can, nobody since has done it. Mm And— Not to say that that means like this whole thing wasn't worth trying, but I think it's a reminder that it's like you see this working in some small ways, but to scale up, I think you need to like keep doing things on a system like this, right? Like it doesn't have the like self-scaling programs as Ezra was suggesting, right? Like if democracy vouchers in Seattle start to transform Seattle politics in a way that starts to— have a meaningful negative impact on the material interests of wealthy Seattleites. Like they have a lot of ability to like push back onto this. And so I hope that they will start thinking in the city government about what kind of like escalators they can – build into this so that like if campaigns get more interested in specifically targeting people for vouchers, if people get more like voucher know-how, as it starts to become more of a burden, like a fiscal burden on Seattle, that that doesn't just become like an opportunity to shut it down, but that they develop. Like a funding mechanism, because like people hate property taxes, you know. Because like, say this is big, right? Like, say everybody in Seattle use their hundred dollar vouchers, or we decide like this is great. They should be two hundred fifty dollar vouchers, right? Like, there should be a way to like, you know, to to really to really make it go.
4: Yeah, and I will. Say, I mean, there are some limits. Just like to be fair to the people who thought of this, there are certain contr. There are limits on how much you can raise, but this is an active issue with the mayors race coming up in a few years where they worry that the funding isn't going to keep up with the program.
3: So one thing here that that is i think embedded in some of what you're both saying but that I've become very obsessed with is like the the need to have a principles level view of how political systems should work. This is something I think we're really used to in other places like like on healthcare like the democratic view is not being able to afford health care should not mean that you don't get medical care. Now, they often fall short of that view, right? The Affordable Care Act falls short of that view. But, like, but that is the value they're trying to get closer and closer and closer to. And like Republicans, like believe, like, taxes are bad. They're on some level, like, theft. And, and they fall short of, like, not having any taxes at all. But, like, they, they want to get the government smaller and the tax base really down. Or you'll hear Bernie Sanders say that, like, no one working 40 hours a week should be living in poverty or unable to support a family. And so that, like, undergirds a lot of then policies meant to achieve that value. And I'm really struck by how little effort and just like how little like honest discussion there is of like, what are the values underneath our political system at this point? I've I've been having this conversation sometimes probably unwisely on Twitter, but like in in my pieces and, and like trying to talk to people about this. And, you know, one of the things right now is that, you know, when you really talk to people about the American political system, a lot of the time their value is just, like, status quo bias. Like, this is how we do things. These are the rules as they exist currently. So, like, this is how the system should work. And, like, that doesn't make any sense, actually. And there are, like, a lot of good values. And, and so this goes back a little bit to your, your point about something like this could be achieving many things. I think like political systems are more legitimate when they are more small-D democratic. So it's like I believe across a variety of levels that like we shouldn't have electoral college, like on and on. We shouldn't have gerrymandering because you shouldn't – you know, you should have proportional representation. Like there, there are a bunch of things like that. But here too, I think that like, we need some values around money and politics and who, who gets to run. And that's a conversation that is mostly just had in a realm of pure power – But that I think Democrats need to decide what they really believe. And on some level, like I think Republicans— I think they've sort of decided that the system as it stands helps them, so they believe that it should be maintained. But it would just be good to have a more ongoing conversation about this. You know, the Obama example, I think, is instructive because here's a guy who ran for office really promising to change the political system. I mean, hope and change was actually directed at lobbyists. Like, if you go back to 08 and you look at who Obama's talking about, he is talking about that people have bought American democracy. And he says, you know, when he uh, refuses that money, that he's going to fix the campaign finance system. But he doesn't. You know, I mean, they do try to pass something to alter, the, you know, to, to have transparency after Citizens United. But Obama comes in and, you know, you can understand this decision. There's a massive economic crisis ongoing and, you know, 30 million Americans or whatever it was without health care and, and, and all these other things that are very pressing. But amidst the things he does prioritize, what he does not prioritize is systemic change. And like he ends up, paying for that. And I think people end up being even more discouraged about the possibility of changing anything. And Donald Trump, too, in his own way, kind of runs saying, like, I'm the only guy self-funding my campaign. These special interests, they can't buy me. They can buy everyone else. You know, the Goldman Sachs people, they give money to Hillary. They give money to Ted. They can't buy me. Of course, like, he just ends up being a plutocrat. But there is like a lot of, I think, desire in the country for this system to work more fairly. And I do think it's something that like people need to begin building a a case around, like building an argument for and then prioritizing. And and this is why I keep trying to make this point about other things being downstream, because I think there's always this feeling that like people get into power and it's like, you can't look at the political system first because, I mean, people don't have health care right now. Like the tax system needs to be changed right now. But If you don't at some point prioritize this over the other things, the other things are gonna be in worse shape forever. And like that feels to me like where we are.
2: I agree.
1: Should we talk about time? Let's take another break and then we'll talk about the nature of time. Hi, we're visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing.
4: Daylight savings time. So we found a fantastic working paper um, called Does Daylight Savings Time Save Energy? Evidence from a Natural Experiment in Indiana from Matthew Cochin and Laura Grant at um, at UC Santa Barbara. This is a bit of a classic. This is a decade old from 2008. So I did not know much about the history of daylight savings time, and I actually find it very fascinating, um, their history section, where they look at how daylight savings time was and wasn't implemented often around war efforts. I did not—maybe I'm was. i just especially naive—I did not realize daylight savings time is supposed to be an energy-saving mechanism. I thought it was something that was supposed to make just life a little more pleasant by having more daylight hours. But it turns out that um, the Uniform Time Act of 1966 was the first federal daylight savings time law, and it was actually— You know, one of the things when they were debating this law, it was really about a energy savings. Um, The Congress actually had some analysis forecasting that each additional day – of daylight savings time would save the equivalent of 100,000 barrels of oil per day. So these researchers at UC Santa Barbara, you know, they kind of set out to figure out, well, is this true? Is daylight savings time saving? um,
2: I just just want to clarify one point. There's been so much enthusiasm (laughs) for the idea that daylight savings time saves energy that it has been expanded. And with the the most recent expansion of daylight savings time, it's now the case that most time is daylight savings time. So what we recently did was we switched back to standard time yes. which we standard
4: we're all, is not the standard which, actually
2: right which is but confusing. that's that's how that's how all in congress has become on yes. the idea that this saves energy anyways
4: the upshot of this is they find that's totally bunk that what they do is they look at a they do a kind of clever experiment where they look at um what happened when Indiana required all its counties to switch and begin practicing in daylight savings time they had some holdout counties that were just living their life in standard time, ignoring daylight savings time, forced everyone onto daylight savings time. And they actually find that daylight savings time results in a 1% overall increase in electricity demand. Um, it's not constant throughout the year. Actually, right around the time of the switch, you see even higher increases from 2 to nearly 4%. What they find is it is true people are using less light um, thanks to Daylight Savings Time, which apparently um, was Ben Franklin's original case for Daylight Savings Time. But they find that the increase in what people use on heating and cooling is so much higher that it swamps that um, reduction in light use. They they find that daylight savings time, it costs Indiana households an average of $3 a year in increased electricity bills, which aggregates to approximately $9 million over the entire state. See, Ben Franklin
2: didn't think about
5: the air conditioners. He did not think
4: about the air conditioners, given that they weren't invented. So, you know, I have some personal gripes with daylight savings time, given that I now have a baby who does not understand it. But, I mean, this – it feels like a pretty striking case against – Against daylight savings time, and this kind of like cockamamie switch we do each year um, between these two different time zones that we're we're all living in. Hmm.
3: Can I ask a maybe dumb question? I have always been told that daylight savings time was about farmers, so and like aligning schedules such that farmers could do their work better in the light.
4: So I had this vague notion as well, and this. Working paper totally disabused me of this notion. Note,
2: for example, that the big daylight savings time holdouts were rural counties in Indiana, <laughs> right? It wasn't. It wasn't like New York was like my screw mind. these farmers. It was the farmers who didn't want. Yes,
4: to do it. I found actually the like lit review section of this shockingly interesting. That a lot, it really was, as Matt's saying, all about electricity savings. That you actually see the country. I had no idea about this but during like world war 2 um during world war 1 you see a permanent switch to daylight savings time i think in one case for 15 months all because it is supposed to save energy germany is actually the first place that ever did daylight savings time also in an effort to save energy. I I had no idea. It's a German
2: plot for world domination.
4: (laughs) I had no idea how tethered to energy this is. And then you have, you know, these two researchers from California, which has like fantastic weather and, you know, isn't really as worried about these things, come along and study Indiana to show that, you know, it actually isn't doing the thing we think it's doing.
2: Although this should be said there's a lot of weird daylight saving time studies right so yes. Jennifer Doliak and Nicholas Sanders found in 2015 that daylight savings time reduces crime through the sort of hilarious mechanism that like people just go home earlier <laughs> <laughs> um, and apparently criminals are not that committed To their crimes,
4: (laughs) but then there's other research from the health space that finds um, the switch in the spring when you lose an hour of sleep actually has some pretty negative health outcomes. Like you actually see more heart attacks, you see people getting into more traffic accidents, you know, uh, likely attributed to the lack of sleep. So there's a whole lot going on with daylight savings time.
2: I mostly have like a. Parent focused view, which is that this is inconvenient for parents of babies and it's incredibly confusing Agreed. to toddlers. I was like trying to tell Jose, I was like, Well, you see, what happened is we changed the clocks. He's like, Why did you change the <laughs> clocks? I'm, like, man, I don't want to get into it.
4: <laughs> um, I have never had a strong opinion about daylight savings time until I had a kid. And I can't even, like, explain to Max that the clocks are changing because he does not understand words at this point in his life and was up at 5 in the morning demanding breakfast. And I did not have a strong argument again for why the clocks were changed. But it really – it feels, you know, after reading this paper, like a relic of how we've practiced policy in the past with less information. And now we have this information that suggests that daylight savings time is not – Doing the thing we hoped it would do because air conditioners have been invented, and the you know the energy demands of heating and cooling at house are actually quite significant. But it feels like there's also a lot of status quo bias. You know, I I don't hear among the many issues, you know, we've been talking about that there is a strong movement. You know, there's a much stronger movement, I feel like, to eliminate pennies or switch to the metric system than there is anyone kind of advocating for moving away from daylight savings. Who
3: is the pro-daylight savings time lobby that keeps this going? I mean, like when I think about Congress, if you tell me that – You know, oh, there is this policy that, one, people don't like, but also it means that we burn less oil. Like, how is Congress going to react to that? I would say they're going to react poorly to that policy. They love burning oil and um, they like doing things that are popular sometimes. So, like, I feel like the political political economy of daylight savings time is increasingly (laughs) opaque to me. I mean, why, why, why do we have – why is it expanding? Like we keep saying like, <laughs> oh, it's because of the energy thing. But like have you noticed that the U.S. Congress loves saving energy? Because I have not.
4: <laughs> yeah. So I don't know much about the most recent expansion of daylight savings time.
2: Well, so okay. There's an article in courts which suggests that one of the initial impetuses for this was that um, golf companies and companies involved in the uh, barbecue and <laughs> grilling industries were proponents in the eighty for the for the eighties expansion of daylight savings. Time. I mean, to be clear, as Sarah said, war is different, right? You know, like like Ezra, you were saying, right? Like like why would you do something that's like moderately unpopular uh, but also bad for oil companies because there's like a technocratic analysis that it would save oil. And like the answer is we do things like that in major national security emergencies and that is the the origin of it. Um, apparently there was this expansion in, in the 80s under the Reagan administration that was pushed by leisure industries that wanted to extend summer grilling season. Um, I do not know what the most recent expansion was driven by. I mean I know Barney Frank was a proponent of it as a – individual member of Congress. But, you know, I don't know what, what nefarious interests sort of lay behind that idea.
4: I mean, I actually do find daylight savings time more pleasant. I see why it is like, like it, it comes at a environmental cost, according to this. But I do enjoy like having more daylight hours. I think we just need to choose one of them, though.
2: I have never understood the view that This allows us to save daylight or (laughs) create daylight hours because the number of hours of daylight is is an astronomical phenomenon. And I'm just always a little bit puzzled by the whole thing. Like we could – if people choose to adjust their daily routines in response to the waxing and waning of the daylight, that seems unobjectionable to me. I actually sometimes have changed up like what time I wake up. Over the course of my life, right? Like right now my alarm is at 620, but like that is not how it has always been. And it, it seems to me that a, a libertarian view on time, you know, could could be manageable. And I have in fact advocated in a Vox.com article and video that we not have time zones at all and that we just let people set their schedules.
4: Oh, man. History of time we zones. We can't That's get into that idea. that
3: big of an idea here at the end of the show. But I like this idea. Um, a libertarian take on time. The weeds endorses it. Yeah. I mean the point of time zones to be clear was to reduce the number of
2: times. It's not that like they created the 24 time zones. It's that each town used to have its own like noon pegged little time. And that didn't work for, for railroad scheduling. Yeah. I
4: learned this from Matt Iglesias' video. Exactly.
2: <laughs> so it's like we just kind of further consolidate for the jet era.
4: All right, one time zone, one standard one time, time zone to, to rule roll them, them, all. them all.
2: Weeds time.
4: Weeds time. <laughs> it all centers <laughs> around ten o'clock on Tuesdays when we tape.
2: Exactly. It's gonna be. It's gonna be amazing.
3: But if you finished your weeds time for today, you know what you should do is go listen to the impact, where yes. you can not only get a great episode on Seattle's democracy vouchers, but you can also get a great episode on Sarah.
4: On what's how South Carolina has kind of surprisingly become a leader in preventing infant mortality. Um, they're doing some really innovative, stuff over there through their Medicaid program. So we went to check it out. So
2: that is great stuff to listen to while you are standing online to vote or uh, otherwise traveling to your polling place. We're going to see what happens in the election tonight. And the three of us will be back tomorrow morning to talk about the results. So thanks to all of you. Thanks to our producer, Griffin Tanner. And The Weeds will return tomorrow morning.